Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I am Eki Tepsapornshai. Brother, I'm loving these episodes, and uh, it's good to be back with folks for another week. And um, we're going to continue on our series on the Ten Commandments. I'm particularly excited about this series because I don't think it's something that you find a whole lot uh, of, of today, right? Not a lot of podcasts, I think, are going through these sorts of things. And um, there's plenty of uh, things out there addressing the the current issues of the day, and those are good and they're necessary. But sometimes, and a lot of times, I think it's good just to go back to some of the fundamental things of the faith. And there was certainly a time where this was fundamental uh, in the Christian faith. Every believer could tell you what the Ten Commandments are, and I don't even think that's true anymore today. Yeah, I think this is um, one that gets often overlooked, and and especially in our hyper-grace kind of movement and and people that uh, are quick to yell legalism anytime you mention the commandments of the Bible. But I agree. I think this is a good section to kind of go over and, and to think about how they apply to today. And certainly we don't want to just dismiss it because the Mosaic law has been fulfilled because as we have mentioned before, the the, the law as revealed uh, through Moses to the Israelites, this was a reflection of the righteousness of God. And so if this reflected the righteousness of God and, and we have been made a new creation, we should care what these things reveal, and especially since nine out of these Ten Commandments are repeated again in the New Testament. So they they obviously matter. Yeah, absolutely. And so if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't heard the first one uh, or the introduction, you'll want to go back and do that. And, uh, you know, we'll kind of build on each other, uh, especially these first two, right? Uh, these first two are really interconnected. And so um, obviously the first one was you shall have no other God. Um, and the second one, let me just go back to Exodus 20 and read this. Um, and since we're so close, I'll just start at the beginning. It says, then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And here's our second commandment coming up in verse four, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So there we have the second commandment. You shall not make any idol for yourself. Well, um, it may be a good place to start out would be to kind of define some terms. What is an idol? What are we talking about here when we talk about an idol? Because instantly, I think people are going to go to, you know, like what we talked about last episode, the little Buddha on the shelf or, you know, the little tiki man or whatever it is. What, what's an idol? Well, in the Old Testament sense for the Israelites, I think they would have understood this to be um, any kind of um, representation, uh, especially of false gods, but it could be even a representation of the true God as well. But it's any kind of um, statue, clay figure um, in the Old Testament, uh, but in the New Testament, and we can talk about that in a moment, but the, in the New Testament, it's basically anything that you place ahead of God and, and make central um, in your life. 
Um, so uh, idols in the Old Testament, uh, more physical in nature, but I think spiritualized uh, to some degree when we look at the New Testament. Yeah, I think that's a good point. <clears throat> and it just kind of paints the picture very broadly. And I think that needs to be understood because uh, it, it makes it a very dangerous thing, right? In the sense that an idol is not just necessarily the little carved image, right? Um, and, and you're right about that. Uh, in the Old Testament, they would have predominantly understood these things to be carved out. I mean, just as an example, uh, you've got, um, you know, the golden calf incident, right, with Aaron. Um, and uh, you have, if you think of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the golden image of him. Yeah. And in all these instances, what did people do? They were created and people instantly worshiped them, right? Um, if you go to, uh, you know, a little bit later on in the New Testament, you just think about places like Ephesus, which had the Temple of Artemis. Yeah. Um, all throughout the Greek world, you had these statues. Uh, if you look at the Apostle Paul, right, in one stage, he makes a speech and he even points to one of these idols, right? Uh, they've got uh, kind of uh, several statues of different gods there. And Paul says, look, you have one that, um, you know, has no name ascribed to it. And let me tell you about the real God. Yeah. Um, and, and so it often would have been something that was carved out. But I think what's key is that it was always something used to facilitate worship, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think we see that here. I mean, it talks about um, the commandment uh, against idolatry. Let me pull up that um, again. I had that just in front of me. But the commandment against idolatry said, you shall not make yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. So idols, obviously, any kind of um, representation of false gods, um, but also even a warning to not make anything that you even see in the heavens on the earth or under the earth. Because there is a temptation to worship that as well, and we know that from Romans 1, that uh, that those who turned against God uh, essentially worshipped the creation rather than the creator, and in some ways ended up worshipping each other. Now, something to point out, too, is that these is Israelites um, were tempted to carry around false gods with them. Even in the book of Joshua, at the end of Joshua, everyone knows that verse where Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Um, but what a lot of people overlook and what they don't see is Joshua's commandment to them to put away the gods amongst them. Um, essentially, they had been carrying around idols with them, uh, even from beyond the land of Egypt. In fact, let me just read this real quick. Joshua chapter 24, starting in verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth. And by the way, that word serve is important because we see that in the commandment as well. Serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So the idea is this, there's only one God that you can serve. And if you are serving other gods, then you're not truly serving the Lord. Now, later, Joshua actually brings it up again because the people insist that they will serve the Lord. Verse 21, the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. And that's after Joshua says, you cannot serve the Lord. He is a jealous God. You're going to turn away from him. And after they affirmed that they will serve the Lord, Joshua said to the people in verse 22, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Verse 23, now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst. So very interesting that they had uh, brought up these gods from even beyond Egypt. So that's got to go back mm -hmm. to the forefathers. Now, 
in some sense, they may have had these figurines or these little statues, and maybe they weren't worshiping them before, but it would turn into um, it would turn into the temptation to worship them, and especially as they're surrounded by Canaanite nations who are worshiping all manners of false gods, and they might be tempted to to do the same. But even in the Ten Commandments, we know it's not more than 40 days that they go ahead and create a golden calf and they give the golden calf the name of yahweh um and so the temptation is constantly there and and what we see and and i think the point that you brought up early on is something we have to consider don't think of idols as just being like little buddhas or just little wooden figurines because really the power of the idol is what comes with it it's what um what people perceive that they are able to do or they have permission to do along with that and so a great example would be the god of molech obviously we know the god of molech was the god that uh, that people would sacrifice their children to and we see a lot of that today just with abortion even though people don't have mm. these clay or wooden figurines they essentially do the um, same thing when they when they sacrifice their children and they even brag about it they boast about it saying my my life was made better because of it um, they call it reproductive rights they celebrate each other's right to do it so very much when you look at it functionally it's very much the same way that an idol um an idol functioned in the old testament yeah absolutely and i think you know that's important to understand and it's a it's important to kind of extrapolate some of those principles um uh, in in how to judge what may or may not be an idol right because otherwise you know the the danger is just as we've been saying you you think it's limited to you know some sort of little relic or or whatever um planned parenthood is most definitely an idol in the eyes of the people today right <clears throat> now for christians you know, we don't idolize Planned Parenthood. But then the question becomes, do we have any idols in our own life? If an idol is not necessarily, you know, some little figurine, um, you know, then is it possible for a believer to have idols in their life? Which, which of course, it is possible, right? Yeah. Um, and so, as we kind of talk about uh, what those things are, I think uh, we can talk about idols in a couple different ways. But it's interesting here because in this command, it, it's sort of broken down in two parts. One, there's prohibition on e even making something an idol, right? And then the second in verse five is that it shouldn't be worshipped. Uh, and, and not yeah. only should it be worshipped, but it also shouldn't be used to be worshipped. And maybe we'll get into talking a little bit about image worship uh, in the Catholic Church, right? Um, and, and because those things would be prohibited as well. Uh, yeah. I like what John Owen said. John Owen said, in the first commandment, worshipping a false god is prohibited forbidden in this meaning the second command worshiping the true god in a false manner is forbidden um and so i think he makes a really good point there and so maybe uh i'll just go to uh the most shocking one that i think sometimes christians uh, turn into an idol and that's the cross well let me explain that um the the, the little necklace cross the little wooden cross the little keychain right. cross right right um now i think we have to be careful and and let me uh, let me say what i'm not saying what i'm not saying is that uh the the cross isn't representative of something amazing but remember the cross in and of itself meant absolutely nothing there were two thieves on a cross too yeah. and their lives meant nothing in terms of our salvation or relationship with god right um and so it wasn't the cross it was the person on the cross right, right? Um, but there is most certainly 
a tendency because uh, you and I both, I, you know, I, I assume you've met these people. I've definitely met these people who weren't really Christian, but they had that cross and they clung to it as though that made them close to God. And in that, it was nothing more than an idol. Yeah, we tend to kind of treat these objects as being mystical in and of themselves, and I think the cross is a great example of that. When we as Christians see the cross, and in my church, uh, we do have a cross in the background just behind the baptismal, um, the the cross is meant to remind us of, of an event that took place. That's Jesus Christ going to the cross to die for our sins. That is how we obtained forgiveness of sins and ultimately eternal life, salvation. And so the, the cross is supposed to be something that reminds us of what Jesus Christ did for us. The object itself has no power. There, there's nothing mystical about it. There's nothing magical about it. It's not like if you carry a cross in your pocket that you're suddenly going to have better fortune or, or better luck. Um, that's, that's where we want to be careful about these objects. And that is often the temptation of these objects. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the Roman Catholic Church. I, I see this often, you know, the rosary beads, the, the, the cross. You know, you, you take these kinds of objects and you treat them as if they have some sort of mystical value just by themselves and uh, and and absent any kind of knowledge or understanding of what those things represent um, they really serve no purpose and so we want to be careful of that we can obviously turn any kind of object into an idol we want to make sure that if we have an object such like such as a cross that we're looking at it the right way that it's meant to remind us of what jesus christ accomplished and therefore directing our our worship and our praise and our thanksgiving to jesus christ not that object yeah you know when we use uh terminology like the cross we're really using that as a metonym Right. A metonym being a word that is representative of something else. Uh, So when we say the crown, the crown is a metonym for the person of the king. Right. You're you're talking about the king. Uh, The king wears a crown. The crown, therefore, is just uh, a a word, you know, used to describe the king. Uh, And so when we use the term the cross, that should be the way we would use it, right? We're understanding it wasn't just any person on a cross because there were thousands of people on crosses. I mean, if you were were carrying around a little wooden cross in the early uh, church days, I mean, people might think you're nuts uh, because that's where thieves and murderers and, you know, enemies of Rome would end up. I mean, there's nothing good about the cross in and of itself. It was around for a long time before and after Christ. And so, um, it, it, and, and the fact that we have people today, the Catholic Church's greatest example, but even many non-believers who will wear the cross and think that somehow um, it, you know, puts them in a better state of living, uh, whether it's in a superstitious way or a legalistic way, but that would be an example of an idol, right? of making something that's very dear to us because we understand what it represents, um, how that can become an idol to other people. Yeah, absolutely. And so we we just have to remember um, that we worship an invisible God. Uh, we worship that which we do not see, and we worship out of our understanding of his attributes, his character, and, and who he really is, and, and not just um, uh, an object. And it's the same thing, you know, when we think of unbelievers. Um, I, I know people that uh, have unbelievers in their household, in their family, and 
they worship idols. Uh, they they may be Buddhist, they may be um, the of the Hindu faith or whatnot, and, uh, and and sometimes a Christian has a tendency to make that into a bigger deal than it really is. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, if you have family members who are worshiping a false god, you want to pray for their salvation. You want to pray for those opportunities to bring the gospel to them, and that uh, their heart will be regenerate and that they would submit themselves and repent and put their faith into the Lord Jesus Christ. But recognize that they're if they have objects in the house that they're worshiping those objects they're nothing they're they're powerless they're they're nothing at all they're they're just really being treated as mystical artifacts but in essence in reality they have no real value and so we want to recognize that it's really just a piece of wood or a piece of clay or what it whatever it may be and not be so concerned that just because it's in the house that must mean that we're opening a door to satan or we're opening a door to some sort of curse to be laid upon us yeah, and we have to realize that some of these things are just forbidden by Scripture. I, yeah. I mean, the 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 easiest example is pictures of Jesus, right? Yeah. I mean, this should be clearly understood to be one of the prohibitions in this uh, commandment, right? Um, and and so and yet the Catholic Church would argue, well, we're not worshiping the image, right? I, I mean, you can go back to Catholic right. history, and oh, let's just answer this question. Well. You know, I hear what you're saying, Eki, but um, I've got this just really beautiful uh, picture of Jesus, and I know it's probably not exactly what he looks like, but it just draws out my affection for the real Jesus, and it just helps me worship, and I just feel like I really need that in my life, and it's good. Well, what do you what do you say to someone like that? Because um, we do that maybe with other things yeah, as well, right. but this is just an easy one, right? Right. Well, in the same temptation, we can end up turning that image into something that's more than what it really is. And on top of that, the image is not even accurate. Uh, we don't know exactly what Jesus actually looked like. And then I think in this day and age, and especially with the heightened sensitivity around critical race theory and all that, this is really kind of taken a life of its own where people want to insist that Jesus was a brown Palestinian man or no, he was a black man um, or whatever it may be. And, and it, it, it's just I, I don't I don't care. You know, when we talk about what Jesus skin color was or or where he came from and what the people would have been like at that time, it doesn't matter. Um, he is the son of God. He was made into the image of man. He went to the cross to die for our sins. That's it. To put an overarching emphasis that he must have been white, he must have been black, he must have been brown. Look, I understand that, you know, when you look at the history and you look at the area that he was in, most likely he was very dark skinned. I get that. But to place more value on it than we should, in fact, we really shouldn't be placing any value on it, um, because he is the God-man made into, he was made incarnate into one of us. One of us meaning mankind, not a, not made into a specific race so that he would only save a specific race or save a specific ethnicity of people. But remember, like, going back to the start of the Abrahamic Covenant, God said to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All tribes, tongues, nations, uh, Jesus end up giving the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all the nations, right? So, so it, it has taken a life of its own. This is the temptation when we start to draw these kinds of images and imagine him uh, being a certain race. And by the way, I, I've seen pictures of him being portrayed as a Japanese man or as a Korean man. You know what? The, the 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 representation itself, I understand why people do that, but but let's not make this into more than what it really is, and and the temptation to start to focus um it, in into what his skin color was and what that means for us. It's it's irrelevant 
Well, what matters most is that he is God in human flesh who lived a perfect life and he went to the cross in order to die for our sins. Yeah, I and and I think it's it's not just irrelevant, it's irreverent. Yeah. Um I I I mean, first of all, it again, the command strictly forbids, you know, the the picture a picture of Christ. And and I think you know, there is some argument throughout church history uh, um, in in terms of, well, we're not painting a picture of God. We're painting a picture of Christ. Well, if if that's the point of view, then what you've just done is uh, you, you've removed uh, the, the the divinity from Christ yeah. because you're saying you're just painting his humanity. Right. There's there's no image that can ever be a real representation of God of Christ. Um, and and so in that way, it's really blasphemous. Because you're trying to, what you're depicting, um, what we're depicting is just humanity. And you have to remove his, and that might seem a little picky for some folks. um, But, I mean, just imagine this. Christ is God. He's a part of the Godhead. Uh, In in a picture of him, you're capturing one. uh, We're just making up what we presume he might have looked like. So that's a problem in and of itself. Uh, the first problem is that we're commanded not to do it. The second problem is we're making it up. The third problem is uh, we're taking out his divinity. You know, and when you really consider those things, uh, it, it's a significant issue. In fact, John Owen also speaks directly to this uh, when he's asked about making an image of the cross even. And he says this, he says, it is Christ's Godhead united to his manhood that makes him to be Christ. Therefore, to picture his manhood when we cannot picture his godhood is a sin, because we make him to be but half Christ. We separate what God has joined. We leave out that which is the chief thing which makes him to be Christ. Um, and, and so it's just a deeper reflection on trying to capture those things. Now, I don't think there are a ton of Christians that probably have a picture of, uh, you know, whatever they think jesus is on the wall um but that's a prominent one but here's an interesting question and i don't know if we'll answer this in a podcast or not we haven't talked about this but you know what 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 do we do with the little representations of christ that we have every year for christmas right right it is something to consider um and, and because what is that well it if a picture is a violation of this command, and I think we would agree that that is, well, is, is that not the same thing? I mean, whether the picture is in adult form or baby form, and and I think uh, that you know the pushback on this would would be largely emotional. Um, now, guys have different opinions, and we may even have a different opinion. My my opinion is just don't put a baby in the manger. Um, at the very least, I I think we could probably. Uh, reason that if we can't paint a picture of Christ, we certainly shouldn't be making an image of him in baby form either, because he wasn't a baby just like any other baby. He was still fully God. Um, it, there was never a time from his birth to his death where Jesus was not both fully man and fully God. Uh, now, I don't know if we really thought about that, but if he if he wasn't fully God as an infant, then we have a problem, Right. Um, and, and so I don't, it would be the same thing. What, what are your thoughts on that? Have you ever thought about that before? 
Not uh, probably not as much as as you have. I mean, I think there's there's a valid point to be made there. If we're saying we shouldn't be making any images of God, why are we making an image of Jesus Christ as a baby? Now, I understand the spirit behind it. They're trying Absolutely. to represent. They're trying to represent an actual biblical scene, and in doing so, I think if they do that and they do that in a way that's at least faithful in in, in a spiritual sense to the text, you know, I, I can see that. Um, but yeah, we we do have to. Be very thoughtful and very careful about those depictions. Now, let me add this, though. Even if we knew exactly what Jesus Christ looked like as a grown adult during his earthly ministry, I would still argue we shouldn't make any kind of image or depictions of it because guess what? He doesn't look like that now. He doesn't. I mean, when you think about the transfiguration account, what was that all about? The transfiguration, and by the way, the Greek word used for transfigured is the same word where we get metamorphosis. Um, he, he was transformed back into his godly image. And when the Apostle John saw him in the book of Revelation, I guarantee you, he looked nothing mm -hmm. like he, he did in his earthly form. So there, it, there is still... Um, some semblance of his earthly form, but I think there's uh, much more of his mm. deity that that is seen now. If we could see him today, so even if we can make a representation of him, people are would be um, would be tempted to worship an image that he doesn't even look like anymore. Yeah. Um. So yeah, all, all these things we have to take into account. Now I understand we're, you know, talking about the the whole baby in a manger. Again, going back to the okay, where we're talking about a biblical scene and we're trying to portray a biblical scene, I, I think, but you, you have to be careful because I do think a lot of people end up turning that into a sacred kind of scene yeah. that they actually worship rather yeah. than using that to remember something that was actually in the Bible for us. And, and I think a good litmus test would be if the thought of not having a baby in the manger really disturbs you emotionally, I, I, th I would say that's a red flag. That, that's a red flag. We don't need that for worship. We should never need that yeah. for worship, right? That, that's a relatively modern invention um, to, to, to do that every Christmas. And so if the thought of not being able to do that somehow challenges your faith or your uh, remembrance of Christ you know, uh, during that time of year, then that is a major red flag. In fact, I would argue that those are primary indications that actually that's become an idol in your life. Yeah. And and it, and I would say that it's likely that that's not been intentional, but nonetheless it's there. And I think if you go back to the commandment, um you know, we have to be careful that we don't get emotionally attached to these things that uh in some cases they can be liberties. Uh, but in some cases like this, if there's an emotional attachment where we feel like we have to need it, I think that's an indication that it's become an idol uh, or becoming so in our life. You go. Yeah, I, I, I don't remember where I heard it, but um, someone said that an idol is anything that you're willing to sin in order to get or anything that you sin in response if you don't get it. Right. Mm -hmm. So you, you basically it's an overreaction in terms of how what you're willing to do to obtain it. And it's also an overreaction if you're not able to, to get it as well. So, yeah, I think that's 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 a good point. And, and that would include in your faith. Right. If your faith wavers, that would be yeah. a form of sin for that. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, the question that um, my pastor used to ask is, you know, if um, if you got a brand new car and you wreck it, does that end up wrecking you? Mm -hmm. Right. 
Um, so you got you got to keep everything, as my pastor would say, with an open hand. Recognize that God can take it away at any time, and that that really is not the object of your faith. Now, some people will take this to an extreme to say, well, it says you should not make any likeness of anything that's in heaven on earth or under the earth so you shouldn't even draw pictures of whales and sharks and snakes or anything like that right so they'll say that and they'll they'll base it off of this passage right what would you say to that yeah i would say ask Eki. No, i'm just kidding <laughs> um well it, you know we, yeah let's dialogue about that because that's a really good point and uh, you sort of read my mind there yeah i think uh i think first and foremost is we need the context Right, yeah. uh, because it, you could get there uh, if you remove it from the context. But if you understand the context is about worship, right? Yes. Um, th- then that eliminates things like taking photographs of trees and ants and bugs, or you know, right. pa- painting the night sky. Um, and, and so I, I think I think the context eliminates all of those things. That, that would be what I would go to first and foremost. Right. It's speaking of those things, and and it and it. It really defines it because it's about an idol. Well, what is an idol? An idol is not a picture of a sunset, right, in and of itself. An idol is something in which would draw out worship to you. So if you paint a a, a beautiful picture of a sunset and you just love it and you enjoy it, you appreciate God's talent in the artwork, then that's perfectly fine. But then if you find that you're using that to worship, well, right. then it's crossed over into an idol. And so I think we have to just always go to, is this something that uh, it, worship is coming from? Coming, uh, Am I worshiping towards it or am I worshiping out of it or from it? Um, then then it would be uh, an idol. That would be what I would say. What, how would you answer that question? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, when you look at this commandment, um, you, you have two full statements being made. Verse four is, you shall not make yourself an idol or any likeness that is in heaven above or earth beneath or in the water under the earth. And then verse five, you shall not worship them or serve them. And that's that, that's the real heart of this matter. Yeah. It's not merely just making any kind of image of something on the earth, but it's making an image with the with the express desire or even providing the temptation for people to actually worship or to to serve those things. And then that's the Romans one, that instead of worshiping the creator, they worship the creation, right? So, I mean, I, I think we can enjoy God's creation. We can even enjoy specific animals, specific types of landscape or, or scenery, as long as we use that to remind ourselves that there is a creator who created all those things and he is the one that is worthy of the worship not the creation itself yeah absolutely and and so i think we keep that in mind well let's kind of shift gears a little bit um and talk about maybe what some of the idols of the day might be for for christians you know so for the the folks who might be listening thinking you know um I, I I probably do have some idols in my life, and I think we all at seasons make things idols. Sometimes they can be long term. Sometimes you can make an idol of something, you know, for a short season. Um, and and we know this. We may not always draw those connections, but we may say something like, you know, this thing I've just really been way more devoted to than I have been Christ, and yeah. and my Christian walk has been hurting because of this thing. Well. It's likely because that that thing has become an idol. Um, we talked about some of this, uh, you know, last episode. But what are some of the things that you see in folks in our common in our current society in Christians that have the tendency to become idols that would violate this command? 
Well, let me do this. Let, let me read from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And if you know the book of Colossians, it's four chapters. And in typical Pauline fashion, the first two chapters are theology. The second two chapters, the last two chapters are application. And so chapter 3 really starts the focus on application. And Paul says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where christ is seated at the right hand of god set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on the earth for you have died and your life is hidden with christ in god when christ who is our life is revealed then you will also be revealed with him in glory and then verse five listen to this therefore so knowing all that hearing all that therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality impurity passion evil desire and greed which amounts to idolatry and so this goes back to our earlier point mm -hmm. that it's not necessarily just the clay figurine or the wooden figurine itself but it's typically what it represents to those who are worshiping them so those in the old testament were tempted to worship Molech because by sacrificing their children they essentially could be as promiscuous as they wanted to be without having to worry about the consequences of that and in fact they could even deceive themselves into thinking that they were pleasing their god by doing those kinds of things so anything that leads to that kind of behavior, immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and greed, that all amounts to idolatry. When we think about greed, we can think about money, possessions, belongings, mm -hmm. um, immorality, um, obviously things like uh, pornography um, or just a, a lustful desire for power or recognition, right? So any kind of evil desire and, and passion um, that's described there ends up being idolatry to us. And for the Christian, and I know a lot of um, good and godly Christians, you know, they they get really caught up in in sports. Um, they get really caught up in um, in a lot of um, just kind of earthly pursuits, and uh, and and even our ministries can end up being idols, right? Ministries yeah. are a good thing. We want to be able to serve one another and first and foremost serve God. But when that ministry starts becoming more important than our walk with God, it ends up turning into an idol, and that can have disastrous um, effects upon our walk. Yeah, I, I think as we kind of uh, survey the landscape in our current culture, identity, right, is huge. Um, identity has become an idol. And I think uh, with the advent of social media, the way it is, I think that's something yeah. that a lot of Christians need to, including us, right? We got to keep a check on our heart. Uh, we, we were just talking about Twitter earlier uh, and some of the, some of the dynamics there. Um, but there are people who live just for you know, they, they want to get the little blue check uh, on their Twitter account. And somehow if they get the blue check, they've made it or they want to get, uh, you know, X amount of followers. And all of a sudden and, and, and the problem is not whether you have, you know, X amount of followers. The problem is if somehow that um, is what you're using or determining your worth, your value, your identity from. Right. And it's a big right. temptation. It's a real temptation. And I think every Christian can be tempted with that. Um, and, and the reality is our identity is meant to be in Christ and Christ alone, right? Uh, I, my identity, who I am, my value, my worth, um, my, my meaning in life, my purpose in life is all seated in the personal work of Christ. And if there's anything else out there that I need, to somehow define who I am 
personal pronouns or whatever it is, um, then that thing has become an idol. But I think identity definitely in, in the secular realm is the idol of the day. Um, and you really hit the nail on the head. I think uh, the, the idol of self, which, you know, yeah. you'll hear it that way. I think it's just identity as well. But, it, you know, it's all about me. And so, uh, if I worship myself, then it's okay to kill the child in the womb because that child's going to get in the way of what I want to do, right? Uh, this is my life, my body, my choice, my life, my right, um, it, you know, and so uh, that's a big idol of the day. For a Christian, of course, and in reality, it's actually not your body. God created you, and whether you're a believer or you're, or you're not, God still created you. You're still created in the image of of God. And so uh, it, there's never been a time for any human where it's been totally my body, my choice in that sense. And for a believer, even doubly so. I mean, how many times does the Apostle Paul say, I'm a slave of Christ? In other words, I'm owned right by christ everything i am uh, we're told to give our bodies offer our bodies as a living sacrifice right we're told our bodies at this temple um of the holy spirit who resides in us and so uh really nothing that we own nothing that we have and even ourselves are are not not our own and so if we start to value those things over faithfulness to christ they can become idols in our life sports you hit on that one i'm not a big sports guy um, so I, I can, from the outside, sometimes I definitely see during certain seasons, uh, and I kind of wonder, right? Like it can, would some of these guys just not survive in life if sports <laughs> was taken out of the picture? Um, now, you know, I say that kind of jokingly, but to get a little more serious, I do know that there are lots of families that will miss church for months and months and months. Yeah. Uh, because their kids involved right. in sports, you know, that should never happen. Um, that's a big red flag. We ought to be asking ourselves if there's something like that, that can keep us from faithful worshiping, uh, on the Lord's day in the local church. Um, th there's a problem there, right? So, so we have all of those things, physical appearance, you know, uh, yeah. can, can be that. And it could be, I mean, I, I, you know, maybe 50 years ago, it was whether you're in good shape or not, but physical appearance would be whether you can dress up like a girl if you're a guy or a dog or a parrot or whatever people are doing that's weird these days. Uh, entertainment, you know, sex, comfort, technology, anything can be an idol, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, you you brought up the Twitter example, and and I, and I just want to point this out. I mean, you know, both of us, I think we we're, we're both just over the 10,000 follower mark which is which is fine but really for the both of us the the our work and our recognition and i shouldn't even say recognition but how we are seen and and how we end up serving those who are local to us in the church you know even if it's only just a few people or or a few dozens of people is far more important than the thousands and thousands of potential people that may be following you on twitter and just to extend that even further there are people on Twitter who have far more followers than you have and I have and even both of us put together whom I have no respect for I would never follow them I don't uh, respect their their um, their their ministry what they believe what they represent and at the same time there are some people out there that 
have less than a thousand followers, maybe just a few hundred followers who I have tremendous respect for because of just their godliness, their mm -hmm. example, their their service to, to the church. So what we are to the people who are local to us, and especially at your local church, is far, far more important than what people virtually see you as. Now, there are some tremendous blessings <clears throat> of social media. I mean, you and I met over social media. Yeah. Um, I just got yeah. through a trip where I got to attend a wedding and got to attend a wedding, not only of the groom who I met on Twitter, but also to attend with with other believers who I met on Twitter and then to be able to go to San Francisco and meet another believer who's on Twitter and be greatly encouraged both myself and, and Alice. So there's wonderful, wonderful ways to be able to fellowship and, and to, to just uh, praise God together with, with other people who are part of the church universal. Um, but um, yeah, our, our recognition and, and how we're seen on Twitter far, far less important than the service that we provide to our local church, to our local body of Christ, to our fellow brothers and sisters whom we worship on a day-to-day -day basis. And then you bring up the sports and personal appearance. Uh, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but we do live in a culture of self-love. You know, there's that saying, heaven helps those who helps themselves, but that saying was not even created by a believer. And it helped lead to the self-help and self-love movement, which really emphasizes the worship of self, um, how I look, how I feel, you know, my feelings, uh, keeping myself, um, uh, you know, um, feeling good and being taken care of and whatnot. And people say something to say things like you can't take care of others unless you take care of yourself first. You know, so these are all the kinds of worldly sayings that ends up turning Christians into almost cultural Christians. And I've met uh, people at um, at at my workplace previously to going into ministry where they would skip church because they wanted their daughter to be able to play in soccer tournaments on Sunday. Yeah. And the rationale given to me is that, well, we want her to be able to enjoy her childhood. But as I look at that, you're sending mm. the wrong message to your kid. You're, you're telling yeah. her that her enjoyment, um, her participation in those sports is actually more important than gathering together with the church to worship, you know, our creator, uh, the, the, the once holy, the, 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 I should say the thrice holy God between God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. So we always want to think about what are we communicating by our actions, our behaviors. And, and I think what you'll find a lot of times that there's a lot of idolatry going on, and it's a lot of the idolatry of, of the self. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it's interesting, you know, talking about those examples of um, what keeps people from church, because a lot of times those are idols, right? Um, even work. You know, I, I have no problem um, telling people that, look, you need to tell your boss you don't work on Sundays. Um, and I realize that uh, that can create challenges. I, I realize that that can create very difficult discussions. Um, but look, it's the Lord's Day and we call it as such for a reason. And uh, you give the world six days a week, five days a week. Um, you know, God commands us to gather in that way, you know, one day a week. Not that you can't do it more and we should, but um, but you're saying, you know, in essence, God, my money is more important than worshiping you on the day you told us to gather. Uh, my, my job is more important. It, it also demonstrates just really a lack of faith in God's ability, right. God's sovereign ability to keep us. Um, and to provide for us, you know, and, um, you know, as difficult as it may be, I'm so bold as to say, uh, you know, you tell your boss that you, I mean, you need to do this in a right way in a, in a, in a, 
um, in a kind way, uh, but insist that you need Sundays off so you can attend church. And if that costs you your job, then you know what? Trust God with it. Make wise the choices. Uh, talk with your pastor, and it, but but do those things. Um, so it's just another way of uh, you know money and how a job can become an idol unintentionally, right? And so I, I want to avoid when we're talking about this in believers. I want to avoid talking about in, making intentional idols because I don't I don't think true believers really do that typically. I think yeah. it's things subtle things that creep in. We all have to pay bills. We all have to eat. We we need to take care of our children if we have them. Those are all good and godly and righteous things to do. They're expected um, uh, of us uh, to do, but not at the expense of worshiping a holy God, not at the expense of being in a local body and committed to that local body. When we have things that pull us away from faithfulness, right, th- then at that point, they become bad things, right? Or at least how we're managing those. Well, I want to talk about another one. Um, I, I I think more and more I like to give just a few examples. Um, and, and the aim is, I realize these aren't going to apply to everyone, uh, but on a podcast, you know, the aim is that it just starts getting you thinking of what may be idols in my life. And then pray and trust God, ask God to reveal those things to you. And he will. Um, he's faithful to do those things because you're seeking holiness. You're seeking to honor him in that. Uh, let me go to Luke 14, 26, because this hits on one that I think becomes an idol for a lot of Christians today. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so I want to talk about family. Family can become an idol, right? Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Why don't you explain yeah. that passage to us? Because it says, you know, whoever hates his father and hates his mother. Uh, what's he really meaning there? What's he saying there? Yeah, and Jesus is not telling us to hate our family, but in comparison to our love for God in Christ, it's, he's creating a contrast that um, if our family is preventing us from worshiping the the, the true God, um, then, then we have to respond accordingly, and we have to make sure that our life correctly reflects that our love and, and our devotion to God is greater than even our own family. And in the Jewish culture, I think this would have been very clear, because back in those days, especially the time of Jesus and, and the rise of the early church, I mean, to proclaim Christ, and even today I would add, if you go to Israel, you'll see this, but to proclaim Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Christ, um, really means that you're going to get blackballed by your family. Um, you're going to be booted out of the synagogue, you're not going to be included on family meals, and when you go to Israel and you see just how sacred of an occasion the Sabbath is, where people are gathered together, they're they're singing, they're celebrating, they're eating together, and, and it is a real family event. I mean, it, you know, in the Western culture, we kind of lose sight of this because we become such individuals that that we don't engage in these kinds of family events. And, and I think that's to our detriment. Um, to, to be less family-oriented is not a good thing. But when you go to Israel, you see just how tight the family is, and you also get a sense then when you think about it, just how much they're sacrificing by putting their faith into Christ. Now, I want to 
make this clear because I have to often explain this to other, especially non or, or new believers, I should say, or immature mm-hmm. believers. You know, as, as a Christian, you're not seeking to put a wedge between you and your family. Yeah. Rather, if you stand firm upon your faith, you will find that that wedge will be created mm-hmm. for you. It's not be, it's not that, hey, you don't worship God, so I'm going to hate you and separate from you, but it's rather your family is going to end up separating themselves from you because you worship the true God. And so that that's really what happens. Jesus is not telling people to to forsake their families, but to recognize that to follow Christ means they're going to have to make a hard choice. They're not proactively separating themselves from their families, but their families are going to put that ultimatum upon them. And when they do, you you have to go with God. And a lot of people in the Roman Catholic Church see this today, especially in South America, where the Roman Catholic faith is, is such a, a strong cultural influence that the idea of leaving the Catholic Church to go to a Protestant church is unthinkable. And it's going to be the same kind of effect mm-hmm. that you're going to be forsaken. And so we want to remember that our love for our family, and and, and we should love our family, right? I mean, yeah. you think about First Timothy 5, um, Paul says those who don't even take care of those in their own household is worse than an unbeliever or a tax collector. So family is important, um, and we don't, we don't treat family just like any other unbeliever. But at the same time, we also don't treat family as being more important than our walk and our worship with the true God. We hope that our unbelieving family would be able to um, not try to separate us because of that. But if it comes to that, you've got to make a right choice and it's got to be clear that your worship is of God and God alone. Yeah, it's a good point. When you look at this word for hate here, it really means by extension to love less, right? Not not to not love, but to love less. And so the the, the point is that we love Christ more than we love, you know, our family. Um, and so, so it's, it's good that you clarified that, but I think, you know, so this is one of those areas where, um, it, you know, we often see in the church, you know, I don't know, especially like here in Alaska, for instance, uh, during the summer, I mean, you guys have family that will come in and it's not uncommon, um, for people to leave and go visit other places. Uh, for us, guys like to leave in the winter, right? And come visit you guys in California. Yeah, um, right. But, you know, what often happens, and we, we see this in churches all around, right? Family comes in and someone says, oh, well, my family's not a believer, so we're going to miss church this Sunday because we've got family in. Well, that would be an instance where you're loving family more than you're loving faithfulness to Christ, right? Mm-hmm. You, you should never, ever miss church because you have visiting family. In fact, they should see that you're fully and wholly dedicated to serving this God that you proclaim. Um, no. and, uh, and and if anything, right, the the heart posture ought to be to hope they would come with you, right, in an evangelistic nature. Um, and, and that's where, of course, we're talking about unbelieving family. I've even seen this when believing family comes in. Like it's kind of this idea of family gets together, and so we're going to hang out with each other and take a break from church. Uh, like wait, no. you're professing family coming together and taking a break from worshiping the holy God who saved you all. Um, and, and so th- those are instances where I think we unintentionally allow family to become an idol. Um, and and so you know Christ just makes the point here that he has to be our first love and our greatest love. And we love our family. 
uh, but we love them less in the sense that he comes first. And so, uh, you know, come the Lord's day and we could talk about, I mean, I, I would make an argument for being at, at being at, at your church for everything available uh, because you never know that thing that you miss uh, is something that God does in the service and you've just missed out because you've not been a part of that. But especially the Lord's day, right? Um, we, we shouldn't be. And again, this comes to things like leisure becoming an idol. Well, I just want to take a break on Sunday. Well, if you really need a break, then take an extra day off of work. Yeah. It, it, you know, take a day off of from the secular world if you need a break. <clears throat> Don't take a day off of from from God's day, right? Yeah, and the mindset um, of taking a break. I mean, stop and examine that for a moment because really our worship together with the corporate body should be the highlight of the week and and i get you know if some some believers are you know they're they're busy in, in service you know maybe they're always doing the soundboard they're always singing or something like that and maybe they want to break from that just so that they can focus on the worship i wholeheartedly recommend doing that absolutely um, but, but but yeah taking a break from from church itself um i i think you have to kind of re-examine you know the way you're thinking and in terms of family members you know, yeah i'm always encouraged when family comes from out of town and they're actually there on sundays uh, with the rest of the family to worship yeah you know i i think there is no better way to you know really establish and strengthen our bond with one another than to be able to worship the holy god together right so i mean ephesians 4 1 to 3 you know talks about how we are to to be united how we are to love one another and, and preserve the unity of the spirit and so there is no better way to to do that than to come together and, and to worship and, and you know there are events throughout the week at the church and i do always encourage people to take advantage of that but if nothing else you know that day of corporate worship is is just it's special you know because that that's the day that that you get to sing together you can you can encourage and and uh, and and teach each other in, yeah. in songs and hymns and spiritual songs and hear the word of god being proclaimed together um be able to fellowship together have a meal together break bread together all those things can happen on on a sunday and and to your point you know there's a lot that may happen in a message or in a service um especially you, you never know who's going to be there what's going to happen that if you're not there you're missing out on on the things that the holy spirit is actually accomplishing or you're missing out on opportunities where you'll hear a prayer request come up you're gonna uh, miss someone that um, hasn't been there for a while and that was an opportunity for you to to really connect to that person and, and try to encourage that person and pray with that person yeah you you never know what can come up so you know i, I would think very carefully mm -hmm. you know about um, about how you arrange your schedule and and think very carefully about how you're prioritizing your activities and especially when it comes to worship now i'm not saying that people can't go on vacations they they can't leave right, town and right. whatnot you know by all means do that um, but when you when you do that still look for opportunities to worship with the body of Christ yeah absolutely I mean I think one of the uh the the, the unique things and beautiful things that I've experienced here um because lots of visitors come to Alaska yeah like a lot of other places yeah. but we often get visitors on Sunday from from other places and look they're here to uh, do all the fun things that you would do in Alaska. They're seeing all the sites. They're doing the salmon fishing. They're doing all this stuff. And, and, and yet they, they take the time to find a church to worship with God's people on Sunday. And that's the right heart, right? It's the heart that says we can do all of our fun and our activities, but this is the Lord's day. And I think 
Um, I, I'm very careful to always refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day, yeah. and and it's intentional. And the reason is because we, we want to get we want people to get in their mind that this every day is the Lord's Day, but this is a day that's meant to be dedicated to our God. Yeah. Um, it, it's not. It's not a day that we're just carving out two hours early in the morning so that we can then get on with the rest of the stuff we want to do, right? Sunday is the Lord's day. And uh, good. And to your point there, um, it, yeah, when I say do come to all the things in the church, I, I said that poorly. Really, I'm, sp- I'm speaking specifically uh, on Sunday. You know, if you have two services on Sunday, then be at both services. Um, it, you know, even if they're duplicate services, I, I would recommend that. Because, well, I mean, surely we don't assume that uh, we hear a passage one time and we've instantly gotten all that God has Mm -hmm. to get out of it. And again, the fellowship. Um, There is something unique that happens on the Lord's Day when His people gather, when you're all there worshiping together, singing together, that doesn't happen in any other setting, right? This is God's commanded us to do this in this way. And so... You can just imagine that, you know, we, we have an enemy. He's a very real enemy, and he can't take your salvation. But if he could keep you away from the blessings and the richness of um, maturity and growing in Christ, he'll certainly do that. And so if he can convince you that uh, soccer games are more important, at least for three months out of the year than Sunday, then he'll do that. Uh, if he can convince you that, you know, the afternoon barbecue is more important and you have stuff to do. So maybe you need to skip this Sunday. If he can convince you of that, then we'll happily do that. Uh, and then, of course, we don't really need Satan to do that. We battle our own sin. Uh, but really, the point is, you know, an idol being something that draws our attention and our affection above Christ. Um, and after over time, it really does become something we start to worship. We don't bow down to self. But I'll tell you, if you open your checkbook and you look at your purchases, you can quickly see um, if uh, what what or who the focus of your life is. If you open your calendar and uh, if if Christ and the things of God is the center of your calendar, then you'll know that. If you and your own entertainment and fun and preferences are the center of your calendar, you'll know that. And so there are some ways that you can just examine your life to see uh, are there things that have become idols in my life? And, you know, the beauty of this is that we ought to be convicted. Um, we ought to have uh, somewhat of a, a burden and the thought of, you know, are is there something that's I've put over God in my life? And, and, and then there's the beauty of when we discover those things that we can repent and Christ forgives us. And we can be encouraged and build up and grow in our walk after that. And that's the whole purpose of really doing these, right? It's not just that one walks away feeling convicted or condemned. um, But, you know, we're talking about growing in your faith and walk with Christ. And this is how we do it. Or one of the ways, right, that we do it is discovering where there's sin in our life. We repent of that. um, And then we enjoy God's forgiveness and goodness and the growth in the midst of that. Yeah, it's impossible to obsess over anything apart from God without it taking away your attention from God. 
So we can only worship uh, one thing at a time. And really for us as believers, that worship should always be focused upon God and Jesus Christ. It's a challenge. I'm not saying that uh, you're going to be perfect in it. I'm certainly not perfect in it. Um, I don't think you would say you are either, Nathaniel. And uh, Not at all. So we, it's it's a challenge each and every day. But I'll tell you this, too. I mean, it's it's not – don't look at this as um, as a chore. Uh, look at this as, you know, the the more you walk with God, the more spiritually blessed you are. Now, I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel where you're going to receive all kinds of um, health and wealth and, and all kinds of prosperity, but you're, you're going to be spiritually strengthened. You're going to feel closer to God. You're going to feel more in tune with His will and His purpose, and you're going to have a greater desire out of all of that to do more of His will and His work. You're going to have more of a heart for the lost. You're going to have more of a desire to serve one another. You're going to do all the things that uh, that contribute to what Jesus said, that they shall know you by your love for one another. And so that, that's all what it means to um, to to walk with God, to be faithful in that, is that we end up looking more like Christ. We end up looking more like God. And people see that in our actions. They see that in our behaviors. They see that in our affection. So really what we're doing here is we're just trying to appeal to all of you who are listening to really just examine how you spend your time, your money, um, where is your heart going towards? And, and is there anything that you see in your life that is acting as an obstacle to your worship of God? Amen. Well, brother, as we close here, like we've been doing and want to continue doing, we've given the law and we've been talking about the moral law, which we are all bound to today. Uh, the Ten Commandments are still uh, the expectation of every every believer. Um, but we also want to talk about the gospel. So why don't you share with us what is the good news? We understand a little bit of the law. So what's the good news? Yeah, let me read from you 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. This is Paul writing to the believers at Thessalonica, and part of their testimony is how they turned from idolatry. Verse 8, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. We as human beings, we have a tendency to idolatry, even if we don't always understand who the object of that worship is. We make our life pursuit to be something other than God, and this is part of the reason why we needed God. We turn away from God, we rebel against God, we deny His existence, we make ourselves, we put ourselves into the throne of God by by honoring our, ourselves and, and putting our own feelings and, and our own desire to be loved as more important than anything else. Well, that, that is really the plight of all mankind. Uh, we are all sinners before a holy God. We have all shown ourselves to be people that do not follow God, that do not seek after God, and together we have all turned aside and become worthless. And, and that is why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, um, to come into this world. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And Jesus Christ didn't just come into the world to be able to show us how to live a better life. He came in order to live the perfect life that we could not live so that he can go to the cross and bear the penalty that we deserve to, to bear for all eternity. And so if we put our faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, and by putting our faith into him, that means we repent of our sins, we repent of our, our, our 
our our idolatry and we follow him knowing that he is lord and savior and, and if we put our faith into jesus christ in that way the promise that we have from the scriptures is that we will have eternal life we will receive forgiveness of sins and we have eternal life that can never be taken away but what it requires is to recognize that there is only one way to heaven jesus christ said i'm the way and the truth the life and and those those who want to come to the father must come through me and so put your faith into jesus christ and jesus christ alone turn away from the idols of your life turn away from the idolatry of self and serve the living and true god make him the object of your worship and you will find salvation amen well we hope that this has been helpful for you who are listening we hope that you'll tune in next week uh and until then let the truth be known the Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.